stop sign to city's limit. Nobody gonna let me down. I ain't Satan. Pay my dues. Pain in a rockin' band. Hey, mama, look at me. I'm on my way to the promised land. I'm on a highway to hell. On a highway to hell. Bow on a highway to hell. On a highway to hell. And I'm going down. All the way. On a highway to hell. Where is my money? I've DM'd one of the people who's still active, who I bet two years ago QAnon would not result in the arrest and prosecution of any top-level pedophiles. He's still online. He's retweeting. He hasn't tweeted for fucking days or weeks. He's just retweeting other people. Give me my money. He bet me a grand. It's over. Trump left, not with a bang, but a whimper. And it does look, just from a cursory glance, that uh, the Q people are, are actually absorbing that it's over and that the whole thing was uh, a lie, which, wow. I don't know how the hell you pick up the pieces after that. I honestly think there's a good chance that a lot of these people will just become apolitical. Because if the one hope that you've ever seen to change things turned out to be a fucking con artist, and the one thing that ever made sense to you turned out to be a big lie, how are you supposed to move forward with any confidence? Some people are going to recommit, of course, but uh, I think a good chunk are going are to become quietists of some sort or another, which is good. Take, take a minute. Take a breath. I mean, when you swing and miss that bad, you can't just get back in the box. you got to limber up a little bit. You clearly, something is off in your swing mechanics if you are going after this bullshit. There is, the, I mean, it's a, it's, funny how little we've mentioned we've emphasized this but seeing Donald Trump seeing the person of Donald Trump and thinking that guy cares about me and wants me to be better he cares about America and wants America to be better that is the greatest piece of like self-deception I can imagine like you willingly stabbing yourself in the brain with a fucking knitting needle and cutting out the frontal cortex because it at least provides you with some relief from the itch and the tor torment. Well, fuck those people. Irrelevant. Where's the violence? Where's the insurrection? Where, what happened? What was, where, why? The stuff I'm supposed to care about. I was supposed to spend the last two weeks since the 6th gnashing my teeth, and all those other people who did that were in the same spot now, and who had a better time? Who had a better time in the intervening two weeks? Honestly, they probably had a pretty good time too, because the key thing to understand about these people is that they like it. So it really just boils down not even to whether or not you're enjoying yourself, it's what gets you off, and worrying about that kind of thing does not get me off. Worrying and fretting and making sure that I'm presenting enough concern 
is not anything that gets me off. But for these freaks, they love it. Poor, at, poor uh, Dan Besner and uh, Amber, co-host Amber, uh, did a totally reasonable, cogent, well-written piece about QAnon for Jacobin, and these fucking people lost their shit because it did not do enough to condemn them, as if what's written in the pages of Jacobin is going to determine the contours of the QAnon movement in the next years. Absurd. But I will say the funniest thing about it is people insist that you can't talk about Q in, in the context of causes. You can't talk of the immiseration or more specifically the uh, destabilization of formerly secure economic positions that makes people uh, more vulnerable to this stuff. You can't talk about that because that lets them off the hook for their racism and their hatred and their evil, which is exactly what conservatives said about terrorism. When you would say, uh, hey, how about we make it so that fewer people in the Middle East want to kill us by, I don't know, scaling back our imperial designs on the region? No, that is uh, giving virtue to these people. This is not focusing on their wrong and sinfulness. It's the exact same approach, which makes sense because they're trying to create a fucking um, a internal white terror 9-11 context for them to, uh, to stave off critique of Biden and uh, justify expanded, mm, uh, expanded internal surveillance and uh, repression. I don't think it's going to work. And I said this on the show, but the big reason that the war on terror went the way it did is because the Republicans had a willing partner in the Democrats. Like, they were both on the same... They were uh, in wrestling parlance. After 9-11, the Democrats were happy to play along and to be the heel, to be the... Uh, to be the... To admit their weakness, basically. To admit what was, that they were wrong. To admit that the Republican view of the war on terror, the Republican view of uh, foreign policy, the Republican view on what it meant was the correct one, and that the only difference between the parties is that the Democrats do a better job of it. The Democrats are going to try it, but here you've got an opponent who will no-sell you. The Republicans, as we saw in the impeachment hearing, none of them, what, they got 10 votes? They were not falling all over each other to say, look, we understand this was a huge deal. We're so sorry. We have to look into ourselves. Nope. They said, uh, actually, you guys said that uh, riots were good last summer, so uh, you're hypocrites. Fuck you. And without a human, it's like, uh, like when, uh, when like Rowdy Piper would do a, 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 a chop, like slap the chops of Hulk Hogan, and he would just start going, when he would no sell it. That's the Republicans here. So that means that the dynamic is not going to uh, persist, and they're not going to be able to wave the bloody shirt the way they want to. But man, the media and uh, their handmaidens are going to try as hard as they can to do it. Holy shit, it's going to be nonstop banging this drum. But I think, I think that that was the high watermark. Maybe wrong, and if I'm wrong, I'll apologize. But even with only a few weeks retrospect, it looks like that Capitol Hill thing was a was the high water. It was the picket's charge. It was the it was the culmination of a movement. And then when Trump disavowed it immediately, 
got kicked off social media and then slunk away with his tail between his legs. And then Biden got in there with no problem. I, I think that the, uh, I think that it's, that the momentum will be dissipated. That doesn't mean that violence will go away. Like I, I've said, stochastic violence, <coughs> stochastic political violence is here to stay, I think. But the idea that there's a uh, genuine Trump threat to our horrifyingly banally evil mechanisms of democratic government uh, is, is going to become more absurd as time goes on. Although, man, I 100% get how if you are just like a regular person who doesn't have like a political critique of the system as such, but is aware somehow that the system is bad, watching the media, I understand how it could turn you into a Trumper. I could understand how it could make you in start thinking, well... These guys are all in charge. You got the guys in charge, and then you've got the media all saying the exact same thing. I mean, the people, the, the, the press, the media during this uh, inaugural was North Korean in its supplicacy to George. They might as well have fucking had people come out in a, in a giant um, a coordinated dance move and like spell out corn pop on the National Mall. They, they talked about how Biden is a good and just and, and, and kind-hearted man who's going to bring, uh, who's going to bring back uh, uh, unity and uh, respect and all, uh, every good thing. He is a harbinger for its return. And when things are just as bad as they were before he became president and the media is still talking like that, on behalf of one party, how do you not think that the whole thing is fucking rigged and that therefore the only person who is on, who is not on the side of this evil status quo is Trump because he's the only one who has been pronounced anathema. Trump is anathema. None of the, the Republican Party is going to be brought back into the fold. Mitch McConnell and Roy Blunt were out there yucking it up with everybody. And the irony, and the funny thing about this, it's really ingenious how this works. So I really do think that everybody in the media, everybody who's on there for all those networks talking about how Biden is light itself and he's going to bring back civilization and he's going to banish the demons and how our long national nightmare is over. Uh, they think they're helping. They think that the Trump movement and, and the, the capital storming is sign of a, a um, fundamental undermining of necessary, crucial uh, American institutions of government and media. And that by going all in for Biden, they're helping. They're like, uh, they're, it's C-Lab 2021. I'm helping. I'm having you. But they're just pouring fucking sand on it. They're pouring salt on everybody. Because having everybody talk like that having this universal fucking uh, uh, hosannas for this guy, when you have to know it's not, it's, things are still going to suck, 
it, it's all just that you're feeling better because that um, because the images are more pleasing to you than the images of the Trump years, but the fundamentals will be the same. By doing that, you are ensuring that anybody who is just watching this and is not invested in the symbology that you are is going to take away from it that you're all in this on the, you're all in on this together, and that Trump is the only one who stands against you. Although maybe not Trump. Honestly, Trump might have fucked this thing. Who knows? We'll see. But man, he really did just shit all over everybody, didn't he? He just went out there and said, have a nice life. Goodbye. Oh, and I'm going to just, I am going to uh, pardon all of the most corrupt political scumbags on earth. Literally swamp denizens and no, no Assange, no Snowden, no Manning, no uh, fucking reality winner. Uh, nobody who is threatened, nobody who threatened the, the state apparatus. Celebrities and uh, fellow celebrities and fellow politicians, people who he could identify with personally, because that's all he ever could do, because he's a fucking psycho. And yes, you're a chump for ever believing in him, but I think a lot of people, we'll see, are coming to the conclusion that, oh, this was full of shit. But the challenge of there being any coherent post-Trumpism is how do you fill the void of Trump? And I don't think you do. I think it's going to be a splintering. I think you're going to see uh, a, a, a wilderness period here. But what's going to keep the Republicans uh, in play and likely get them back the House, even with there being a pretty much open civil war now within the party. I mean, Liz Cheney has already had some local Yahoo announce that they're challenging her for the House next year. Anybody who spoke against Trump in the last two weeks will get a fucking high-profile primary challenger. How that boils down, though, I don't know. I'm not doing predictions. But, man, it was really nauseating watching the news. Just people, people manufacturing a reality right in front of you. If you're watching something that by any objective standard is a hair-raising nightmare. Just think about this stripped of the ornament. On the National Mall, surrounded by 25,000 National Guardsmen and 12-foot-tall steel barriers, they led this fucking nearly 80-year-old senile man out to bump into things uh, swear allegiance to the flag, get his fucking uh, drool wiped away, and then read a fucking speech off of a teleprompter. And in, well, everyone's wearing masks, and there's no uh, actual crowd because of a, a rampaging pandemic that's killing thousands of people a day. That's the reality of that fucking inauguration. But what we were told we were seeing is some triumph of American democracy and the return of, of values and sanity and, and, uh, and compassionate leadership. And everyone doing that thought they were sh thinks that they're shoring things up, but what they're really doing is undermining it even faster by ensuring to anybody watching that, yes, this is exactly as rigged as it looks like. This is exactly as anti-democratic as it appears to be. Uh, well, 
who's up for some the last section of the republic for which it stands huh let's finish this fucker up so r.i.p to the gilded age you were a real one uh so let's go through this chapter by chapter the first chapter is about urban poverty uh, and immigration. We get all the good Jacob Rees stuff about the tenements and uh, uh, the horrible conditions within and the reform movements that attempted to ameliorate those conditions. Uh, all, of the, all of them headed by people who thought that the immigrants who lived in those conditions were barely human anyway, which obviously complicated the uh, process of trying to do the amelioration. Uh, and he talks about the assimilation of those immigrants into the American experience. And this is where he really emphasizes that, uh, like, the people who made American culture what it is, like, actually gave it culture, were the immigrants. The middle class Protestants who were, who were trying to turn their lives into everyone's life, uh, that was where culture went to die. Uh, and the degree to which that model prevailed in the 20th century is the degree to which American culture failed to exist. Uh, because that Protestant home that they were fixating on, this middle-class home, is, is, is the place where uh, the middle-class expectations, values, morality constrain behavior and thought to such an degree that uh, meaningful artistic expression is almost impossible. Like, yeah, the, where, what, what American culture is, is, is black, it's Jewish, it's uh, Catholic, uh, and, and poor, poor Protestant, poor white Protestant. Middle and upper class white Protestantism created basically no culture. Very little. And uh, he finally talks about baseball and how it became uh, a, a, and how it was, in fact, a immigrant sport. It was played mostly by German and Irish immigrants. Uh, the next chapter, we got Lizzie Borden, uh, and which is, although he, said, he claims, White claims that she was guilty, uh, um, the baseball statistics dork, uh, I keep, I want to say Rick James. What the fuck's his name? Last name is, I know who this guy is, uh, Bill James. Bill James, in his book about American crime, claims that she was innocent. But anyway, uh, he uses her as a good example of uh, how white womanhood, which was this thing that these systems were designed to protect, uh, was being. Uh, undermined from within and the anxieties that that created in the people who saw everything going wrong. People saw that all the, the things that, uh, that the contract labor, the contract uh, freedom, individuated citizenry, individuated liberty notions that they had built uh, was creating the opposite of what they wanted and they were freaking out about it. 
But the main thing I wanted to talk about here uh, is the populists. Because in this section, we talk about the rise of the populists in the West and the Midwest. And um, I think of the populist movement as the last gasp of the, of the smallhold yeoman um, conception of American liberty politically expressed before it was subsumed in the 20th century by broader ideas of like the working class. Because uh, at this point, working class political organization is still incredibly incohate. You had things like the Knights of Labor and you had things like the, uh, the AFL, but there was very little political expression. There was, no Ameri there was no labor party, nationwide labor party of size. There were a few, uh, there were things like the Greenback Party of the 1870s that, that were uh, attracted working, labor, working class votes. We saw how uh, Henry George attracted working class votes when he ran for mayor of New York, but there was no single uh, labor party. Workers, uh, if they were Catholic, uh, mostly voted for the Democrats if they were part of the urban machine. Uh, if they were Protestant in the North anyway, they probably voted for Republicans because those sectional uh, distinctions mattered more than ideology. Uh, and, it is, and White points out that one of the things that has retarded American uh, working class political effect efficacy is that Partisan formations emerged before the working class became articulated as a self-conscious notion. Uh, in most, in the European countries that got pushed the, bar, the ball of socialism further, mass uh, suff universal manhood suffrage came at the exact same moment that wor the working class was coming into being. Uh, here, the, the 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 party system that they were dealing with emerged in the 1820s, uh, when the model of employment was. Uh, if there was employment, was uh, uh, artisan-based mostly, where wage labor was relatively rare and usually a, condition, a, a transitory condition of life. Um, and so when these Western and Midwestern farmers who had followed the railroads out West as the, they'd been told to by the Republican uh, forebearers, vote yourself a farm party, and told you can find freedom with land. Property will be your liberty. You don't have to worry about politics. Just vote for the Republicans. We'll keep a nice uh, lid on inflation with the gold standard, and we'll allow you to bring your crops to market but with the infrastructure that we've invested those tariff monies into and allow you to uh, live freely. Well, by the 1880s, uh, many of them were finding out, oh, uh, the system of crop lien um, fun financing and the uh, manipulation of freight rates by railroads uh, and the deflationary na nature of uh, gold standard is actually making, that, making it hard for me to be free even though I have land. And the Populist Party was an attempt to articulate that politically, to articulate a a producerist idea of American uh, freedom. Uh, and after the defeat of William Jennings Bryan in 1896 and the, subs and the transfer of uh, like the reformist drive into the two political parties from outside of them, 
where the progressive movement did most of the uh, the work that they demanded, but not through the expression of a like a coherent political party like the populists. Uh, that dissipated and was replaced by what we got by the end of the, by certainly by the end of uh, uh, World War One, a political concept that was consumerist in its conception, where people's freedom was not a freedom to make, uh, it was a freedom to buy. And that uh, changed uh, fundamentally the nature of political contests in this country and ensured, for one thing, that uh, the working class, when they did become a more coherent and effective political uh, force, would be amenable to exchanging the demand for control over the conditions of labor for more purchasing power. And that is what we ended up getting in the 20th century. We got a working class that over and over again, in its political expression, traded uh, autonomy and power for consumption. And that turning point for that, I think, really was when the populists were broken. And one of the reasons they were broken is that they were unable to link up effectively with the working class. As White shows, uh, the uh, Brian, Brian's Democrats actually saw their share of the urban working class vote go down, even though the urban working class, the Catholic ones anyway, were by and large Democrats, because this was a rural, Protestant, dry movement, evangelical in nature, and that, uh, and was not like culturally amenable. And because the Democratic Party, sorry, keep honking, I'm consuming. Are people saying there's a problem with the, oh boy, it's choppy? Oh no. Oh man, that poem was dog shit. I'm sorry, man, but that fucking poem was terrible. Just awful. All right, well, let's just move through this then quickly. I'll, I'll, I'll probably not go too long. Um, Okay, we've got the uh, the depression of uh, the panic of 1893. Another uh, another uh, another railroad panic. This time caused started in Argentina, but uh, once again causing a significant collapse in um, credit and liquidity and. There was nothing the government could do about it because it was committed at the top of both parties to the gold standard. The gold standard was inviolable, even though the base of both parties was probably broadly in favor of at least bimetallism, if not full fiat currency. 
the upper echelons were completely controlled by gold bugs. And that speaks to the, the way that uh, the democratic impulse in the, in the American political system is, will always be dissipated and uh, diverted away from the like, load-bearing structures of whatever those in power at the moment think constitutes the, the governing status quo. Uh, like, it turns out that you can actually do a lot with fiat currency, and you and uh, you can still have capitalism, and you can still have uh, banks, and you can still have credit, and you can still hold your citizens in thrall to the moneyed interests, even with fiat currency. But nobody knew that back then. Uh, and more importantly, the people demanding uh, currency devaluation uh, and and more currency in the markets were almost universally people hostile to existing power structures. So just by that virtue alone, uh, it was not going to happen. And while you might have the votes at the grassroots to push for uh, expanding the currency, at every level higher, as you get towards the Senate and the presidency, you're getting to uh, points where uh, electoralism is diffused more and more away from a, um, from a, I hate to use the word, but accountability. And that accountability is replaced by uh, systemic incentives. And that's why you, you had, in the middle of this depression, you couldn't get one of the two political parties to come forward and say, hey, uh, what do we do something about this? Until William Jennings Bryan shows up at the convention in 1896, and gives the cross of gold speech, which cuts through all of the malarkey, cuts through the bosseries, cuts through the existing structures, and allows the, uh, this demand to come forth. But it is, rather than the beginning of something, it really is the last gasp of uh, this producerist, sort of Jeffersonian, Jacksonian model. Uh, when it comes back again after uh, World War II in the form of, you know, the small government conservatism that, and libertarianism that is now, uh, you know, the dominant ideology on the right. Uh, it is in the, it's not, it has uh, been fully subsumed by consumption. And I do think it's interesting that one of the last things that he talks about is the role of the courts in establishing corporate personhood and a substantive due process system that uh, made it very difficult for uh, workers to strike, but made it very easy for corporations to do almost anything they wanted. Uh, and that is another ex example of the constitutional system doing what it was designed to do, which is to dissipate points of responsibility away from democratic accountability. Because the judicial branch is obviously the least uh, uh, democratically, the, the, the branch of government least sensitive to democratic pressure. Uh, and the people appointed to ju ju judgeships are most likely to 
be amenable to people at the very top of the party structures that might be in power, which means they will reflect those interests. And the period of the late 1890s or the late 19th century that that brought about the progressive movement, it was a creation of, it was a self-realization on the point of this middle strata of political class, judicial and legal, media, uh, and corporate managerial that the competition that had been the, the uh, bulwark of uh, the early capitalist system in America was counterproductive and uh, disruptive and needed to be reduced. And that's when you saw the rise of the, the trusts. And that's also when you saw the assertion by the judicial branch of the prerogative to define the Constitution to essentially make effective working class political organization almost impossible. And it's only when you have those things in place that the progressive movement, which comes after this, can take hold. But that's for the next book in this six in this uh, series. Uh, I don't, is that one in there? Let me. They, they have. I don't think they have one for the whole thing yet in the Oxford structure. But uh, it looks like there's no Oxford history for the years from '96 to '29. So there's like a 30-year gap. So someone's got to write that. That'll be interesting. Oh, it's called Reawakened Nation. I'll probably read that. So the next book, uh, uh, we're not going to start right away. I'm going to think about it. I'm thinking it might be Foner's Reconstruction or maybe Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. Not sure yet. I'll take... Uh, recommendations if anyone has them if anyone likes wants to DM me or something uh, I have read late Victorian holocausts that's a great book Mike Davis is the absolute king there's no question about it am I still like skipping or is it good I don't have, just so you guys know, I have no way of changing any of this. I, like people say switch to a different numbers and P's or whatever. I don't know what any of that means. I'm good now? Okay, good. It's skipping? Ah, shit. I stopped make, skipping 20 minutes ago. That's good. But like that poem, just back to the poem thing. That poem is a perfect example of this. You watch the poem. It's dog shit. And then you see 500 people get in a line to tell you how it's the most inspiring thing they've ever seen. What are you supposed to think about that? How are you supposed to think? Like, am I wrong? They assume that you will just go with what they want you to say, but like the whole point of media fragmentation is that people can go to what is amenable to them. People can find the voice that is agreeable to what they think already. And what we're getting from the fucking state media about this inauguration is, I can't imagine agreeable to anybody but fellow bubble members, other Democrat, not even Democratic voters, but Democratic self-identified voters, 
people who identify emotionally with the Democratic Party the way that Republicans identify emotionally with not Republican Party, but Trump. And that means you see that, and all of your efforts to try to you know, reinstill these values about the sacredness of these American institutions is just going to further drive people away. And it's, more than anything, it's just humorous because you know they're so excited. They're so excited to be able to do this, to be able to go on TV and assert that, that we are in the best of all possible worlds now. But what that means is they're gonna keep being surprised. <laughs> as things they don't want to happen, happen, as, and as people keep acting a way that they don't want to act. What was the poem about? I have no idea. I mean, I know it's mean to make fun of, like, she's a kid, she's like 22 years old, but, you know, there is still something off-putting about being expected by a unbroken chain of people uh, to be enthralled by it. I will be checking out the new Adam Curtis documentary, that's for sure. And one last thing I want to say about the Biden speech, which was just an absolute snooze fest. He, he, annoyingly, he didn't have too many fuck-ups. They really know how to keep him gassed up during the big speeches. But the thing itself was incredibly boring and, 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 and uh, soporific, which of course is the idea. You're supposed to so, soothe everybody back to sleep. Uh, but there is the part where he quoted Augustine and said something about you know, a community is defined by the, the common object of its love. And the sec and what he said was some shit about like the common, our common love is, I don't even know, I don't remember. It all sifted through my brains. But whatever pablum it was, whatever abstract principle it was, it was incorrect. The actual common object of our love is free refills. That, more than anything, is what has spurred a lot of the political violence of the last year, is being kept away from our free refills. And the fucking soda machine is running out. The syrup is almost gone. The bubbles are dissipating. And all they have, in, 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 all they have to replace them are words, and the words are supposed to do the job. And they think that should work because it works on so many people, but more and more, it's working on people who are the least affected, who have the most soda, who have access to the most refills.
Alright, I think I'm gonna probably stop soon. But to back to the QAnon one more time. And the comparison between the way we the the rhetoric of the war on terror and the rhetoric now. One of the things that seems to make people really mad when you try to really talk about the, the, the Trump phenomenon as a social phenomenon is that if you do not emphasize at every moment racism uh, and, and authoritarianism and fascism, that you are letting them off the hook. That if you talk about a material uh, conditions creating the ground on, on which these things emerge, that you are undermining uh, you know, the, the, the rhetorical case against these people which needs to be made. Yes, that is mirror to the way that the right talked about terrorism, but what I think is really interesting also is that when people say that, when they say, oh, uh, economics, uh, schmeconomics, um, these people are just racist. Well, sure, and they're delusional, and you're not gonna get them, and their argument you shouldn't court them. You shouldn't think about what they want because they're raving maniacs and they don't even know what they want. That's true. But when you talk about addressing uh, any kind of pathological social condition, terrorism, Q, whatever, by addressing the material conditions that spawn it, it's not really about deal doing anything about the people you have who are currently part of that movement. It's about stopping the flow of people to it. It's stopping people who otherwise would not do that, do it. And there seems to be this idea that the Q thing is like a dormant DNA strand that like just pings after a certain moment and then people will just flood its ranks. And if that's true, if there's something just in the DNA of like lumping white uh, culture that drives them towards conspiracy and white nationalism, the activator is precarity. And so the way to deal with an emergent phenomenon like that is to reduce the amount of precarity that is felt by these people who might be triggered that way. But people resist that because if you could ever become that in their mind, that means that you are irredeemable and you don't deserve better material conditions. The very thought that you could be tempted into Q-ness means that you don't deserve them. And that is the liberal logic that underlines uh, the whole project, the, the whole liberal left uh, social project. Because we can't make things better for anybody, we're going to punish the deserving. And the emergence of uh, this MAGA movement and Q is a chance to beat the snakes out of the grass and punish them, which is exactly what the Bush administration tried to do with terrorism. Huey Long, every man a king when no one wears a crown. I think I've talked a bit about Huey Long in the past. Huey Long is what you is 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 the southern expression. Uh, it, it's not a coincidence that Huey Long came from the Deep South, because the Deep South was the least 
was the area where uh, where like working class politics was least able to find purchase and was replaced instead with real demagoguery, uh, the kind of stuff that uh, you know the the Brahmins were always afraid of. But uh, at every point, though, that demagoguery is abetted by the very ruling class who claim to be afraid of it. Uh, in this section of the book, they talk about how the the adherence to white supremacy, and specifically the Democratic Party as bulwark of white supremacy, meant that the Populist Party could not make inroads among the uh, agrarian workers of the South, of, of the small like sharecroppers and stuff, who were, or the white ones anyway, the ones who could vote and were uh, also exploited by the cropland system and railroads and everything. Uh, and that's why the populists had to nominate Bryan in 96, because the southern populists, are, I mean, sorry, the, the, uh, they knew that they would lose in the south, that they would not be able to compete, that they would end up giving the presidency to uh, the Republicans which of course is always the, the problem that third parties have to deal with. And one way you deal with it is by not caring. And there were populists who didn't care. In fact, it was mostly the Southern populists who didn't care because the real Southern populists who'd been fighting for years against the right-wing bourbon Democrat aristocracy fucking hated them because they were happy to use intimidation and violence and fraud to keep them out of power just as they had the Republicans before them. But it was that partisan adherence of Southern Democrats, of Southern small farmers, that ensured that the populace could not uh, form a unified producer's front. How is the Australian ballot causing voter suppression? The Australian ballot is the secret ballot. It is the written secret ballot. In the North, a lot of recent immigrants didn't write or speak English. They were able to vote because Tammany, for example, in New York, would give them a ballot that was filled out already and say, go and vote, and they would. Uh, having to have people go into the room and write the ballot themselves meant that people who couldn't read English were unable to uh, knowledgeably exercise the franchise. Who's the second funniest president? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, somebody asked, first of all, somebody asked, was anti-immigration the left position? I honestly think in the 19th century, if you're talking about popular politics, left and right are kind of inapplicable. They're a little, they're ahistorical. You had populism, and then you had uh, like the establishment. And populism was anti-immigrant because immigration 
was a uh, compete because uh, immigrants competed with native labor, and that has always uh, been an issue. Uh, that sort of, and, but it is also self-defeating because immigrants are still going to come, and if they are denigrated and uh, and ostracized by uh, the populist forces, the same way that black free labor was in the South, you create divisions within the labor pool that can be exploited by the ruling class at every point. So it is self-defeating in the long run, but it is also, uh, if not moral, I guess inevitable would be the word, when you have a situation like in the late 19th century of, of, uh, stagnant, of, of uh, declining wages, declining standard of living, and increased immigration. Uh, but the kind of, uh, but, and it was not universal. Like the Knights of Labor were anti-Chinese, but they made significant real attempts to try to woo uh, Southern black workers because they could, they could identify uh, Southern blacks as American and, and amenable to like the American producers ethos that they were trying to inst uh, protect in a way that they could not imagine the Chinese were. And those kind, of those kind of distinctions can only be broken down by, by the sort of cosmopolitanization that comes with uh, capitalism. But anyway, the second funniest president. Hmm. Okay. I guess George W. Bush was kind of funny, although looking back on it, the stuff that was funny about Bush just seems so banal now. It's kind of amazing. I think Biden, honestly, might end up being in the running, depending on how senile he is, or at least how, how senile they allow him to be seen as. But we don't know yet, in terms of ones who haven't yet, in terms of ones from the past. George H.W. Bush was kind of funny just because what a dork he was. I mean, he puked on the Japanese prime minister, talked about how he didn't like uh, uh, broccoli. He had Dan Quayle as his vice president. Another guy where you look back and it's like, oh, that's adorable that people were amused by that. Uh, but no, like if he, if he was, if you could have seen him every day and if you could have heard him every day, Andrew Johnson would have been the answer because Andrew Johnson is the president who's most like Trump in person. And not coincidentally, General Andrew Johnson is the last president to not um, appear at the inauguration of his successor because he was like Trump, an incredibly bitter little asshole who was all-consumingly narcissistic and viewed the entire uh, pageantry of, of like the American political, um, the entire the entirety of American politics uh, through a personal lens, through uh, his own validation of himself. Like uh, Johnson claimed that he was doing what he did, imposing an incredibly lenient reconstruction on the South. Uh, to protect the small, poor whites of the South, who he thought, because he'd been a unionist uh, before the war and opposed to uh, the slave power, uh, because he thought that slavery hurt poor white people the most. And of course, slavery did hurt poor white people. The lack of, uh, the concentration of wealth in the hands of the planter elite meant that the South was wildly underdeveloped compared to the North. It had almost no public schools of any kind uh, and very little infrastructure that, that poorer people could have access to 
because why? What, what's that do for me as, as, a, as a grandee of the fucking Mississippi Delta to have these fucking assholes go into school? I don't fucking care. It doesn't, well, it's no skin off my ass. It's not like the northern capitalists who you know, needed this shit to facilitate the, flow, the, the capital flows that they were interested in, in uh, facilitating. So it did hurt them. But to Johnson, that was the only hurt that mattered because it was his hurt. Because he had a Trumpian, Nixonian resentment of people who were higher up in social, the social order than he was. And so even though he was pursuing what he thought was justice for the small, poor white of the South, the system that ended up coming out, coming about at least in part as a result of his actions and re-enthroning the planter class after the war was one where poor whites were, by the end of the century, in the thrall of a democratic party that was ruled by bourbon aristocrats who had no interest in seeing those poor whites advance and who maintained uh, the disinvestment in public uh, infrastructure. The Reconstruction governments that came in after Johnson uh, left office, the ones that were often uh, headed by carpetbaggers or, in some cases, uh, freed slaves, were the only governments during that whole period that actually invested in public infrastructure and public schools for whites and blacks. And you had a figure like Tom Watson, who emerges to be a populist to, and at first tries to create a coalition between poor whites and blacks, and in the face of the persistent uh, racial hierarchy, ends up saying, well, if you can't beat them, join them, and becoming a fervent racist and Democrat, uh, which might have helped him sell magazines, but didn't help the poor white people of the South at all. Do I think Trump or his family will suffer any legal action? I don't want to predict much anymore. Mug's game. I would be very surprised. I'll say that. If any of these people go to jail or are even charged with anything, I'll be very surprised. Because presidential impunity is baked into the cake. We're looking forward, not backward, remember? LBJ was pretty funny. That's a good choice. Called his dick Jumbo. That audio of him talking about his, uh, his bunghole to the guy from Hagar Slacks, that's just funny. There was also a, when I went to the LBJ library, uh, they have a replica of the Oval Office, and they have... Uh, a phone, and you pick up the phone and it'll just play random parts of the LBJ uh, presidential tapes. And I, I put it up, and one of them was him talking to Catherine Graham, the publisher of the, the Washington Post, who I believe he had an affair with, uh, and he is just coming onto her like a maniac. He, uh, I believe at one point he says, if I was a steer and you were in a if I was a steer and I saw you in the paddock over, I'd jump over three fences to get to you. And of course, he talked to his aides while shitting, which is just alpha king posture.
And he also said, I had more, uh, talking about LBJ, or talking about JFK, who of course has a reputation as this Lothario's Lothario, he said, I had more women on accident than that boy had on purpose. He was basically Buck Strickland, yeah. And I absolutely believe that he had a bigger dick than JFK, just for the simple fact that JFK was Irish. Uh, uh, James Buchanan was apparently a very erratic uh, and touchy, like a prickly guy, like an unpleasant person, uh, and kind of like a fussy sort of schoolmarmy type guy. And yes, was the first, well, he was the gay president that we can say pretty definitively exists. I mean, there might have been other gay ones, but Buchanan was definitely gay. Which, that's tough for the gays, because he is definitely a fucking bottom five president. Not bottom one, that's fucking Johnson, but definitely one of the worst ones. His predecessor, Franklin Pierce, uh, was just a hardcore alcoholic, which says a lot, because it was hard to become an alcoholic in the 19th century, because everyone was shit-faced all the time anyway. Garfield was a fucking nerd. Garfield was one of our most... Uh, 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 he's a, he was an, a real uh, book, bookworm, real, real nerdlinger. And he loved lasagna. All right. I'm going to maybe go in a minute here, see if there's maybe one more question before I say goodbye. Frederick the Great was so gay that he wouldn't look at women. Like, he actually wouldn't, like, set eyes on them. But he didn't, he also, after his boyfriend got his head cut off in front of him by his dad, he, uh, he focused on war. The Brits are freaking out about Biden in what sense? Because he's going to reunite the, uh, the 32 co uh, counties? I don't think he's going to reunite them. I think they're doing that themselves. With the bloody Brexit, isn't it?
fucking Irish. He's barely Irish. It's like half Irish at most. Yeah, apparently now for the first time in American history, we've got an Irish, a Catholic president, Catholic Speaker of the House, and Catholic Supreme Court Chief Justice, which would have made Thomas Nast's fucking head explode. Remember this fucking, uh, remember this one? One of my favorite, my favorite Thomas Nast. The fucking, uh, the bishops coming out of the ocean like alligators. They did it. They conquered. People who, in the 19th century, those fucking, uh, bleached out Brahmins thought were incapable of Republican governments are now, our governance are now at the top of all of our institutions. Really does show that, uh, that the stuff that people fixate on is, uh, rarely the shit that matters, but that's exactly why they fixate on it. Because it allows an illusion of progress, an illusion of issue uh, addressment, addressment, an illusion of progress towards policy, towards a better republic, towards the shining city on the hill, when in reality you're just, you're just treading water while the machinery continues to grind behind the will. All right, folks, peace out.